Welcome to Everyday Law. I'm your host, Bob Clark. Today, we have the dreaded special election edition. We're going to talk about election law in the past, the present, and likely the future. I have a star-studded cast of guests today. I have Ronald Schwartz, live from Howard County, Maryland. I have my longtime law partner, Alan Steinhorn, from Prince George's County, Maryland, and from the border state of Wisconsin, where war is being waged between voters. We have Jerome Francis Buting. Welcome to the show, everybody. Good morning, Bob. Good, Good, to Bob. Be. Good to be here. Any of the opinions that are offered are not the opinions of Howard Community College, its staff, faculty, or employees. And that any legal discussions on this show are not intended to provide legal advice. It is imperative if you need legal help that you contact a lawyer and provide them the details of your particular situation so they can give you appropriate legal advice. With that said, I'd like to hear from you first, Jerry. What do you perceive things are in Wisconsin presently and how are things going to work out there? Wisconsin obviously was is was and is still a very divided state. You know, some of the the early returns in terms of where the vote came from, you know, Trump lost in the suburbs, uh, particularly around Milwaukee. He he lost the some a lot of the suburban women that he used to have. Biden also gained even more. The turnout was just massive in Madison. And uh, I don't haven't heard a whole lot of analysis yet of the city of Milwaukee, what the turnout of that was like. Trump did gain, though, in the north and west rural part of the state, but just not enough to, to uh, counter all of the increased votes he got in Madison and the votes he lost in the Milwaukee suburbs. So he's got a 20,000 vote lead. And in, in my view, in most people's view, that is insurmountable, even on recount. Isn't that about the margin that Trump won it last time? About 20,000 votes? It is. It is. It's almost exactly a, a flip of, of the way he won it the last time. And Hillary did not challenge or ask for a recount, even though she could have. And partly, I think it's, it's, that was a recognition of, I mean, we've had a lot of recounts in the last 10, 15 years here in Wisconsin, including, you know, Scott Walker, who had a recall election and it was close. And, and the history of recounts, at least the recent history of recounts in Wisconsin shows that they only change a few hundred, 300, 400 votes total. So 20,000 is, uh, in my opinion, unsurmountable. No matter what recount he does, it's extremely unlikely that there, there could be a, that kind of an error. And just so we're not too inside baseball in Wisconsin, Scott Walker was the governor of Wisconsin who was elected, was recalled, survived the recall, and then subsequently in the last election cycle was defeated by his Democratic counterpart. That's correct. And his vote margin was, was similar, I think, somewhere in the neighborhood of, of uh, 20,000. Uh, and he did not ask for a recount because he was familiar with the procedures in Wisconsin. The, the election vote is counted very accurately. The, the one exception to that, interestingly, was my own city where I live. Of course about, it was. About 10 years ago, uh, the city of Brookfield suddenly found 14,000 votes that had not been counted at, and they found this like the day after the election. And it was a huge, it was the Act 10 election where it was a, supposed to be a nonpartisan election for a Supreme Court justice in April. And, you know, the governor wasn't on the ballot, but he had just been elected, Scott Walker, and he had just abolished, basically abolished 
public unions without telling anybody that was that was his plan. And there was a huge uproar. There were 100,000 people protesting in Madison. So it was a huge election. And then all of it, and very, very close, the so-called Walker Supreme Court justice was losing at the very end. And then suddenly my largely Republican city of Brookfield came up with 14,000 votes that flipped it and won it for him. And so there was a lot of consternation and they watched the recount. They did do a recount that time. Um, and sure enough, the vote changed very little. Even in that recount, it was just um, the city clerk ultimately lost her job. But it was a, it was a human error in not turning in the, the data. It wasn't, didn't have anything to do with the votes themselves. So, Alan, I'd like to ask you a little bit. Jerry has described in Wisconsin a sort of urban and exurban split. The rural people vote one way and the city people vote differently. Is that your overall analysis of the election elsewhere in the United States? That's exactly what's happening. And that's why with states like Pennsylvania that are still outstanding, it's not just a matter of how many votes are outstanding, but where they're located. Right now, the outstanding votes that haven't been counted are in the Philadelphia area. That is traditionally a very strong Democratic area. Many of them are mail-in ballots, which are predominantly Democratic ballots. So even though Mr. Trump is ahead in Pennsylvania, if we go to the urban areas around Pittsburgh and Philadelphia, that's where the Democratic votes are coming in. So it looks like it is possible that Joe Biden will win Pennsylvania. But the urban areas and the suburbs around them appear to be predominantly Democratic, whereas in Pennsylvania, particularly, the area between Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, the middle part of the state, seems to be predominantly President Trump. So, Ron, you're a native Pennsylvanian. I figured you would have a little commentary. But I'd like to add to that that there does also seem to be, aside from the urban-rural split, there's also a split between people who voted by mail or voted early and people who voted on a same day basis. I wonder if you could comment on that specifically with regard to Pennsylvania and then generally with regard to the electorate as a whole. Yes. And, and you know, the famous quote about Pennsylvania was uh, James Carville's quote that there's Philadelphia and Pittsburgh and Alabama in between. That's not exactly true because the northeastern part of the state the old industrial part of Allentown and Bethlehem and Wilkes-Barre, Scranton, where Joe Biden was born, was originally coal mining and steel towns. You know, the, the steel mills were in Allentown and Bethlehem, Bethlehem Steel, where the coal mining, the anthracite coal mining was up in the northeastern part of the state. It was a heavily unionized blue collar area. In the last 10, 15 years, a lot of those jobs have been lost. The steel mills have closed. The coal mines are, are shut down. And a lot of those blue collar union jobs have been lost. That area has trended Republican. It is one what used to be a solid Democratic area to now in, in the last election, Trump won it by, uh, in some places, overwhelming margins. And, and one of the criticisms of Hillary Clinton was that she never went to northeastern Pennsylvania. She didn't go to Allentown or Bethlehem. Those were traditionally Democratic areas that turned. Now, with regard to the ballots, what's happened in this election is that most of the Republican vote has been on the day of. They voted on November 3rd. But the Democrats, because of the pandemic and fear about going into close voting polls, which, it, as it turned out, didn't really happen, voted largely by mail. So while there, for, there is most of the vote outstanding in Pennsylvania is in the Philadelphia metropolitan area. And 
I should point out that the suburbs of Philadelphia that used to be Republican, Montgomery County, Pennsylvania, which was a Republican area for years, the, the Republicans around the county, has in the last 20 years shifted and is now solidly Democratic. It used to be that people with wealth voted Republican and uh, working class people voted Democratic, and that's changed now. Also, these ballots that are being counted are mostly the mail-in ballots. They're, they're all entirely mail-in ballots. And, and what they're saying is, for example, there is outstanding vote in Luzerne County, which is Wilkes-Barre. Now, that used to be Democratic, but Trump won it by 20 points in 2016. This year, Biden has eaten into that margin. Right now, it's he's got a 14-point lead in Wilkes-Barre. So Biden's performed 6% better than Hillary did in Wilkes-Barre. But what they're saying is the vast majority of the mail-in ballots to be counted even in Luzerne County are going to be Democratic. Uh, Isn't that why people- won that, that It looks like Trump's going to win that, that area, uh, Luzerne County handily. The vote that remains to be counted is going to be Democratic. It may not be 90-10 like it's been in Philadelphia, but it may be 60-40 Democratic, and that's still enough to help Biden win there. And is that, the is remaining that, votes to be counted. Is that why the pundits are saying that Pennsylvania may flip to- Biden, because the ballots that are left to be counted are the mail-in, which are predominantly Democratic? All the ballots left to be counted are mail-in ballots. Now, there's some dispute as to how many are left to be counted as we sit here today. Some people are saying it's, it's as many as 600, 700,000 ballots to be counted. Uh, other people say it's 450,000. But if Biden wins them either, even two to one, and most people think it'll be more like three to one, then he should have enough votes to overcome Trump's lead, which has been shrinking steadily. It's right now down to, I think, about 130,000 votes, I think, as we sit here right now, and they're continuing to count. So maybe by the end of the day, if they count those votes, Biden will be slightly ahead. One of the things our producer wanted us to point out is that it is November 5th that we are commenting on all of this. It's a kind of an extraordinary thing to be in the United States two days after the election and really have things be so extremely close. Do you have an opinion, Ron, about what's going to happen ultimately, both with respect to the election outcome in Pennsylvania specifically? So we don't know what's going to happen in Arizona. There are Biden's got a slim lead in Arizona, but there are votes, a fair amount of votes to be counted. And we just don't know. Uh, most of them in Phoenix, in metropolitan Phoenix, Maricopa County. And we don't know how those votes are going to break down. The first batch of votes came in about 60 some percent. The absentee, the early vote counted, Biden had a 10 percent margin. The same day vote uh, was pro-Trump and that ate into that margin. The first batch of ballots that came in last night was more pro-Trump. And the question is, what, are, what can we project about the rest of the vote that's outstanding in, in, in Phoenix? And we just don't know. We don't know whose votes they are. It may be that the late arriving votes, the votes that people took their absentee ballots and dropped them off at the polls, which is what those votes are. They could be more 50-50 or pro-Biden or they could be pro-Trump. We, we don't know. But if they're as pro-Trump as the last batch, then Trump could conceivably overtake Biden in Arizona. So, so we don't know. In Georgia, there's about 60,000 votes to count, and the, those votes are running three to one Democratic. They're all in Democratic bastions. So it looks like that uh, Biden may, ver by a slimmest of margins, overtake Trump in Georgia. I would say if I had to bet, I think Biden's going to win Georgia, but it's going to be a razor thin margin. 
So Pennsylvania is really where I think, and, and, and I should point out that if Biden loses Nevada and Arizona, which is possible, Nevada, the margin is razor thin and there's votes to be tabulated there. And he wins Georgia. That's that's a tie in the Electoral College. That's a two six. He's got to lose Pennsylvania, too. Right. Well, so so Pennsylvania will decide the election, essentially. If Biden wins Arizona and Nevada, he doesn't. Then need the election is over. I would wonder, Mr. Butte, what do you expect out Nevada way? You know, Nevada is very hard to, to predict this year in particular because of the Latino vote that has been surprisingly depressed from Democratic ranks as, as uh, I think people expected. Nevada's was really expected to be blue this year, but we've seen the Latino vote as a block and they don't vote as a block. That's one of the problems we have when we think of them that way. But we've seen that Trump eating into that demographic everywhere. Florida, hugely, of course, that, that Latino population there is different. It's Cuban, Venezuelan, both very anti-socialist, conservative. But even in Texas, uh, along the Rio Grande Valley, uh, Biden did not do as well as you might think among Mexican-Americans. And so Nevada is really hard to, hard to predict at this point. We may know by the time this airs, we may know that. But one thing we won't know by the time this, this airs is the legal challenges. And maybe we should talk a little bit about those. That was on my list. I figured I would get where we are presently out of the way. And then I'd like to take a brief plunge locally, just to note, as Ron was pointing out to me, that we did have a local judicial election in Howard County. And the incumbent, John Kuchno, was defeated by his challenger, uh, Quincy Coleman. Maryland has these contested judicial elections about which a lot of us are highly ambivalent. When you practice law locally, you get to know judges, and there's some you like better than others. In Prince George's County, where Alan and my office is, the sitting judges did well. In particular, a dear friend of this show who's been on multiple times, Sharon Kelsey, was prevailed in that election. But locally in our county, John Kuchno seems to have lost, which I think is probably a bit of a surprise. It is a surprise to me, I'd say. Yeah. So one of the things I wanted to talk about is if there is a disgruntled candidate after all of this is done, what sort of recourse they may have, politically speaking and court-wise. And Alan, do you have any thoughts about that? Well, President Trump announced his intention to file legal challenges to the voting and the outcome before the voting began and before the voting was tabulated. So there are some that feel it affects his credibility to challenge an election that's not finished yet. However, President Trump is probably the most litigious man in America, and he has found that litigation accomplishes goals for him. So there are lawyers all across the country challenging the counting of ballots. Now, most constitutional scholars say that it is unlikely that he will prevail on any of these claims. But right now, there are numerous lawsuits pending. They have filed lawsuits in Pennsylvania to stop the voting. They are in Arizona saying we need to continue the voting. Many of these legal challenges will not be successful because they have to pinpoint a state or federal law that is being violated, and they have to give the facts that support the violation. So far, the lawsuits that have been filed are based on the claim that Republicans have been trying to go into the polls to observe what's happening, 
and the states are not allowing these Republicans who show up to go into the polls. They get prior approval to go in the polls. They are there, but they're sending more people. And because those extra people are not being allowed, they're saying there must be fraudulent vote tallying going on because they're not permitted to watch it. It is anticipated there will be litigation in all the closed states, but it is not thought this litigation will be effective. So, Jerry, you seem to have some history for contentious post-election proceedings in Wisconsin. Is there any talk of legal efforts there? And also, I would note that the Supreme Court has, in anticipation of this election, been more involved than customarily. And one of the cases came from Wisconsin and involved the, the extent to which they could extend counting voting because of COVID-19. If you could talk generally and specifically about Wisconsin, that would be useful, I think. Sure. So in Wisconsin, the, the case that was decided just uh, about 10 days ago, right before the election, interestingly, went differently than the Supreme Court decisions on North Carolina and Pennsylvania just uh, the very next day or two days later. Uh, the difference, though, is that in Wisconsin, the challenge was to a federal judge's ruling, whereas the other states were Pennsylvania State Supreme Court and North Carolina that had ruled that under state law, they were going to accept ballots that had been postmarked before the day of election or on the day of election, as long as they were received within, I think in North Carolina, it's nine days. And in Pennsylvania, right. it's three days, something like that. In Wisconsin, though, there was no state law that had expanded the the period of time in which ballots could be received. And, and up to now, anyway, the state law required ballots to be received, including absentee ballots, on the day of election by 8 p.m. A federal judge in Dane County in Madison, Western District of Wisconsin, ruled that because of the pandemic and, and certain emergencies, they could expand that. As, and uh, the Supreme Court said, no, no, this is a state law issue. Federal court should not be involved in that. And so they reversed that. Or essentially what they did is they, they agreed with the Seventh Circuit that had already ruled that way. This also brings up, I think, the, the interesting thing, comparison to Bush v. Gore, the case in 2000 where the Supreme Court essentially handed the presidency to George W. Bush instead of Gore. A big difference, though, and, and people have wondered, you know, what about Pennsylvania, these challenges? Alan talked about the challenge on um, there being enough observers present during the, the voting period and the vote counting period. But there's other litigation in Pennsylvania. In fact, one of the cases that the Supreme Court declined to review right after they intervened in Wisconsin involved the question of the extended time for receipt of ballots. And by the way, this is a fun fact. You know, that Bush v. Gore, it was really, frankly, an embarrassing decision, caused a lot of consternation in America, of course. Um, that case had never been cited by the United States Supreme Court on any case since the almost 20 years that it was passed until last Monday in the Wisconsin case. And it was cited by Kavanaugh as some sort of authority. But the difference, the real difference with Bush v. Gore was in, in that case, Florida had changed the rules for counting after the election was over. And they said that that couldn't be done. That You might think that, uh, you know, an election is basically controlled by state law. And therefore, what is the United States Supreme Court getting involved at all in these these kinds of election cases. But they've said there is a federal right to and that when the Florida Supreme Court allowed the rules to be changed to count, you know, the famous hanging chads and all of that, 
that that was a violation. In the Pennsylvania challenge, and in uh, there's one now in North Carolina, and I think in Georgia as well, the rules were clarified by the state courts before the election so that everybody knew if you postmarked your ballot by the election day, it would be accepted. So to change it now would disenfranchise all of those people who relied on those rules when they voted. And so that's a whole nother stretch that maybe this Supreme Court with its composition now is willing to go there. I really hope not. I think it will cause all kinds of civil disobedience, frankly, and embarrassment in the world. Uh, the court intervenes in a, in a situation like that. So I think it's unlikely. Wisconsin, there's a challenge, but it's, it's, it's different because they, they already won the real challenge they wanted, which is to require votes to be counted only if they're received on the day of the election. So, Alan, can we make a bright line distinction that the Supreme Court will say that if the state legislature or the state Supreme Court or highest court in the state supports a particular interpretation of vote acceptance, the Supreme Court won't intervene, but if it's a federal judge, then they will, or, or is it that clear? It is very unclear, particularly with the new member of the court coming on. What Jerry is referring to was Judge Kavanaugh's opinion in the Wisconsin case, where he added in a footnote that he believed the federal courts, based on the court's ruling in Bush versus Gore, that the federal courts are empowered to step in and overrule both state legislatures and state courts, even a state Supreme Court, because of the federal interest in protecting voting and the constitutional right to vote. This has never been a position taken by any justice. And in fact, if you read Bush v. Gore, they went to great lengths to say that this opinion is narrowly tailored to the facts of Bush versus Gore. And if I recall, Ronnie, you might recall, you have a good memory. Didn't they say in that opinion that the opinion was not to be used for future uh, precedent to be cited in any future cases, that it only applied to the facts of the 2000 election and the Florida case? Yet Justice Kavanaugh used Bush versus Gore to say, if the Supreme Court doesn't like what they see in any of the states, they can intervene. It's a little more complicated than that. Judge Rehnquist wrote in his opinion, and it was only Judge Rehnquist wrote that the Constitution vested in state legislatures the power to control elections. Now, that's the interesting question that Judge Kavanaugh jumped on in the recent decision because what happened is in 2015, the Supreme Court in a five to four ruling in, in the case of Arizona State Legislature versus Arizona Independent Redistricting Commission found that when what the constitution meant when they said state legislatures was the entire state government, that the legislature could in fact delegate to a redistricting commission the power to make judicial districts. So it was not really, when we talked about the rights of state legislatures, it spoke to the state generally and not just the legislature. Now, Judge Kavanaugh focused on that footnote in the Rehnquist decision to say, no, it is only the legislature's that can determine what the state law is. And state court judges don't have the power to overrule laws passed by the legislature when it re as it regards to federal elections. So that's the interesting question as it relates to the outstanding Pennsylvania ballots that the state Supreme Court said could be received three days after the election, but postmarked by election day, because the state legislature in Pennsylvania did not allow that, but its state Supreme Court said that we also have in Pennsylvania a right to vote, which is just as important as the right to set election law. And therefore we are 
interpreting the Pennsylvania Constitution to say we're going to allow these three extra days for ballots to be received. And Justice Kavanaugh would overrule that. Well, that's not been decided. That question is left open and those ballots have been segregated. I understand, but I'm just saying that the composition of the court has changed. Even Rehnquist would not go so far as to take the position that Kavanaugh is currently taking. I don't believe a, a majority of the Supreme Court would agree with Kavanaugh but it's very hard to say whether it can intervene in state Supreme Court decisions. I'd like each of you to have a brief say about provisional ballots. Why don't you start, Ron? So after the Bush versus Gore election, the Congress did pass a law that said that in all federal elections, anybody who the state election board, if you showed up at the polls and you believed you were properly registered to vote, and for some reason your name didn't appear on the rolls, or there was some question as to the validity of your right to vote, that you could cast what's called a provisional ballot where you would vote and that ballot would be set aside. And then after the election, they would take a look at it and see if that vote was valid or not. It was a federal law that was passed after the Bush versus Gore election to make sure that people were not disenfranchised wrongfully, that they could check afterwards and see if in fact, you know, there was some glitch in the, in the, in the computer or whatever or a person was improperly stricken off the rolls. And those ballots are segregated and there's gonna be a fair amount of them, not that many. Typically they don't usually affect the result of election. But for example, in the Georgia election, which may come down to a couple thousand votes, that looks like it's gonna be razor thin. And it may be true in Arizona and Pennsylvania, then those provisional ballots may matter and they're not gonna be counted until about the week after the election. So final kind of quixotic thing that I think at a time when it appears the election cycle really was better for the Republicans than for the Democrats, or than the expectation was for the Democrats. Four states legalized recreational marijuana. Two jurisdictions made hallucinogenic <laughs> drugs legal. And Oregon decriminalized basically all drugs. And I just wondered how you would reconcile that seemingly more liberal inclination with the overall electorates leaning more conservatively. What do you think of that, Jerry? Well, I think we are gonna need to, to see how the analysis comes out later. But I think that, first of all, the, the real message is that we are a very divided country and that we are, many of us, guilty of just listening to our echo chamber of people that think like us instead of those who do not think like us. It's practically 50-50 nationwide, and we need to accept that. And, and, you know, we need to somehow bridge that gap so that we can get something done for this country that those areas where there is common ground. In this instance, it's going to be interesting to see. Normally, you would think that when the Republicans do well, social progressive issues fail. Here, they did not. So that tells me that there is a, a real growing consensus in America on both sides of left and right that are criminal justice policy with regards to drugs is, has failed and that we need to take a new approach to them. Oregon essentially decriminalized everything and has now made it a public health issue instead of a criminal justice issue. Like Portugal and Switzerland. Correct. And it's going to be interesting to see how that works with, with the opiates uh, addiction that's also sweeping the country and causing many, many deaths. We need to put money into, if we're going to get, you know, legalize it all, we also need to make sure there's money for treatment and rehabilitation of people who become addicted to, to certain ones. So, you know, I, I think that shows that there's a, there's a consensus in some social issues, behavioral issues in America, but uh, there's still a very big divide and it may be over the economy. At root, I think we must remember 
America has always been a pretty conservative country. We stand out from the rest of the Western democracies. Socialism is a buzzword that frightens Americans. You know, when it comes to issues like healthcare and the economy, that probably helped many of the Republicans uh, who are running on those anti-socialist type platforms. Alan, I'll give you the last word on this. Do you have any thoughts about reconciling the election with some of these individual outcomes? I think it reflects, number one, the belief that people should have independence and personal choice from government. The Trump era has ushered in a time period where people are saying enough regulation, enough government interference. I agree completely <laughs> with what Jerry said about the drug wars. I grew up raising children in the 1980s when my children went to school under the D.A.R.E. program that had to do with all drugs are bad and Nancy Reagan's just say no. It's now been 40 years since that program was enacted and there's been no reduction in drug use. Secondly, people are starting to appreciate the criminal consequences of our drug laws have probably been as harmful as the drugs themselves to many of the people involved. So I see this more as a move towards social justice and personal choice, but I think that a lot of the vote in this election may have been based on economic points of view. And if you study the Republican voters, the number one issue to them by a large amount was the economy, far above coronavirus. So I think there's a strong component of an economic issue here where people felt that Mr. Trump would benefit their economy more than Mr. Biden. I would very much like to thank my distinguished guests today, Ronald Schwartz, Alan Steinhorn, and Jerome Buting. This has been Everyday Law. I'm your host, Bob Clark. It's going to be an interesting week. Have a nice day. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio. 